Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. My guest today is Scott Lincecum, and we'll be discussing whether or not the U.S. should engage in industrial policy to meet challenges like the threat of China and climate change. Scott is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Cato Institute, where he writes on international trade, industrial policy, and economic dynamism. And he's the author of the recently released policy report, Manufactured Crisis, Deindustrialization, Free Markets, and National Security. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Good to be back. So we're going to be talking about industrial policy, Uh, but before we really get into it, I just want to try to be clear what we're talking about exactly. So I'm going to give you a definition and then you can tell me uh, why it's wrong, incomplete, uh, doesn't do the job. So let me, let me start right here. Okay. Industrial policy is having government promote via tax, regulatory spending or trade policy, certain sectors or technologies or even companies for some strategic national goal. Is that what, what's missing there or is a lot missing? Um, I think that is pretty good. Um, I, I, would, I would narrow it a bit um, because I think that the, the, one of the problems we have in the current debate over industrial policy is that um, it, industrial policy, even by your definition, can, can bleed into a lot of things that I just, it's just very difficult based on kind of the traditional definitions of industrial policy to, to, to fit into those definitions. Um, I worked on a definition for seven days. I'm, I'm really sorry. It's a finely honed definition. No, no, you're, and I think you've, I think you're close. Um, I think a couple of things. One is um, the technologies point, I think, again, bleeds into things like basic research, right? And I think it then feeds into a lot of the arguments of pro-industrial policy folks um, that things like the internet and the iPhone are industrial policy, right? Or at least um, are the products of industrial policy. Um, and I'm, I'm actually writing a new paper on, on some of this now. And I think that that, um, in, again, you, you need to kind of tailor it a bit more. Um, the other thing that, that seems to be embedded in there that I would make a bit more explicit is that industrial policy is inherently nationalistic. Um, we, industrial policy advocates want any sort of benefits from the industrial policy to be uh, national benefits, whether that is manufacturing jobs or certain products or or whatever, that is that is inherently it must be national uh, and nationalistic, um, and and I think that that again um, rules out some things. For example, um, and we can get into this a bit more in a bit. Um, it, it's I think it's difficult to say that the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine is a product of real traditional industrial policy, because that contract said quite plainly that the government um, would not have control over uh, the supply chain, would not, is, was not demanding a American-made vaccine, for example. 
Um, and then the third thing that, that again, I think is in your definition, but, but maybe needs to be a bit clearer is that, um, there, there is a, a plan in, in this, um, and that this is, this is in, in terms of a government plan to achieve defined objectives. And I think that's the last bit that, that I think you're in there when you say, you know, a strategy and so forth, but, but that's really another really concrete part of industrial policy that again, tends to get washed out in some of these very wishy-washy definitions. And, and what I mean by that is the government is not merely giving a bunch of money to a bunch of smart people and saying, Hey, go do stuff. The government is saying we need to achieve X, whether it is more semiconductor output, or increased manufacturing jobs in high-skilled industries, and then going to set about to provide incentives, uh, domestic subsidies, uh, protectionism, you name it, to achieve that that goal. Um, and, And that, I think, again, it ends up ruling out some of the things that are, are I think, erroneous, erroneously called industrial policy, where, for example, the government's funding some sort of basic research project, and these guys stumble upon some sort of magnis- magnificent uh, invention or development or technology, but the government really had no plan or design for that. It, it simply was, again, just a bunch of smart people being smart, and they happened to be on a, a government grant when that happened. And um, that's just not what I think traditionally is considered industrial policy. Well, it seems that I'm hearing a lot about that phrase, and it seems that the, that the notion um, of industrial policy uh, is having kind of a, a moment in a yeah. way I haven't seen in a long time. Yeah. So- why is it having a mo- uh, a moment, uh, and how is that like actually playing out so far? Do you think? Sure. So um, I think it's having a moment uh, primarily because of China. Um, the the uh, the Chinese government about a decade ago, um, with Made in China twenty twenty five and a few other. Um, plan, industrial plans, um, really changed course. And, and I don't know if you've seen uh, Barry Naughton, who's a, a, a China expert, has a new book out on, on this. And he, he actually documents um, how the Chinese government in around 2010 uh, had a major sea change in how they wanted to do economic policy, going from you know, being more market-oriented, more reformist, to being much more um, expressly pro-industrial policy and throwing a lot of money and government subsidies and government action towards um, specific sectors, um, things like semiconductors um, and electric vehicles and um, you know AI and a few other technologies. Um, and that, I think, set off some alarm bells with the U.S. government, particularly um, going into the mid-2010s when, you know, the, there were also um, other bilateral irritants um, and problems that, that the Chinese government um, was, was creating, whether it's in the South China Sea or with, you know, the Uyghurs in Zhenjiang or Hong Kong. So there was a, a geopolitical tension combined with a change in the Chinese government's economic policy approach, um, throwing just gobs of money at these different technologies. So, so in, in Congress um, and in uh, the U.S. business community, uh, this, like I said, sets off alarm bells. 
Um, we need to do something. We need to counter these subsidies. And of course, let's face it, um, some very smart and uh, uh, well-connected lobbyists also see the opportunity for there to be new subsidies for, for domestic uh, companies and corporations. So, you know, this, I think, has created a lot of momentum. The other thing that I think has happened is that um, over the last decade, due to, I think, due to the Great Recession, but we're not exactly sure, is there has been a slowdown in um, productivity, um, particularly in the manufacturing sector. Um, and that, I think, also, and, and there's been a slowdown in government uh, funding of R&D and these other things. And, and that, I think, is also creating a bit more momentum to um, giving this a kickstart of sorts. So market skeptics in particular say, look, um, the market is failing and we need government to step in to boost uh, R&D spending and to boost um, productivity and manufacturing and to do all these wonderful things um, because the market just simply isn't achieving those objectives. So, you know, you combine China with some of those uh, data points and and you get, um, like you said, a lot of momentum for, for industrial policy. So how do you see this push for industrial policy playing out in the Biden administration? What do they want to do that resembles industrial policy? Sure. I, I think the the biggest areas look to be in uh, environmental technologies in particular. <clears throat> uh, the Biden administration has been quite clear that they want to throw gobs of money at um, whether it is battery technology uh, electric vehicles, um, really any and all uh, technology related to climate change. Um, and that is, a, I think, a classic example. And of course, they want it to be here in the United States, They and they want this to have all sorts of other economic achieve other economic objectives, boosting manufacturing jobs, for example, uh, restoring, quote unquote, the U.S. manufacturing sector, those types of things. Um, <clears throat> and that that is really, I think, classic industrial policy, that they are picking specific industries um, and they are picking uh, specific economic objectives uh, in the United States. And they are uh, doing this and they're, they're going to achieve those goals through um, subsidies, protectionism, buy American mandates, you name it. Um, very classic kind of industrial policy uh, levers. Um, and so I think, you know, that uh, where, where things then get a bit murkier is just kind of when they talk about boosting basic government funding for R&D. Um, if we're talking about just basic research, again, just throwing money at a bunch of smart people and, and saying, basically, go be smart, um, that, that strikes me, again, as less meeting the traditional definition of industrial policy and something, quite frankly, I think a lot more people can, can get on board with uh, because uh, you know there is, I think, stronger case for basic research support as opposed to um, sectoral uh, industrial policy. Some people would say that in a time of crisis that we cannot, we, we can't let wait for the invisible hand <laughs> work its magic yeah. and good stuff will eventually come. And that the, that we saw that in, that we had a, we had a crisis with a pandemic and we saw a government get more involved <laughs> Uh, than it would otherwise. They'll say, well, listen, we have two, and now we have two other crises. We have a crisis, we have a geopolitical crisis yeah. in China. We have a climate crisis. Surely the U.S. cannot just say, let, let, let markets work and climate crisis will be solved. We will, we will move. Uh, we will always be ahead of China. Yeah. E everything is fine. Just, 
we're just going to do a little basic research, keep taxes light, keep regulation, you know, yeah. smart and efficient and everything will be fine. If I have, if I'm a, if I'm a politician, I have voters saying, I'm really worried about the climate. I'm really worried about China right. saying, um, don't worry, we're just going <laughs> to let the markets work. It's a, it can be a tough argument to make. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, but I think there are other arguments that can and should be made. Um, and the first one is that the United States has a long history of experimenting with industrial policy. And I, again, I mean real industrial policy. And as I've written in, in, as I wrote in my recent paper, and as I'm writing in a new paper now, the results of American industrial policy in the past have been pretty lousy. Um, in the worst case, we end up with things like the Jones Act. Right, where we need a domestic shipbuilding industry uh, on supposed national security grounds. Uh, a law is implemented to effectively force companies to use American ships uh, th that are made in America, crewed by Americans, so forth and so on, to tr transit uh, goods from US port to US port. And the result has been um, absolutely catastrophic. Uh, you know, a, a steady decline in the U.S. Uh, fleet, a, a shipbuilding industry that that is so uh, <laughs> inefficient that it doesn't really make any good or large ships, certainly doesn't sell any abroad. Um, and of course, the mobilization of uh, a very well-connected and very uh, efficient lobbying machine to ensure that there are no reforms uh, made. And then, of course, you know, all sorts of uh, costs for consumers, particularly if you live in a place like Puerto Rico or Hawaii. Um, but even the supposed successes really, if you actually dig into them, you know, weren't really successes. Um, there was a study just a couple of years ago about, for example, um, uh, pilot funding for green energy. And the researchers found that, you know, the, the, uh, these startups did okay, but they truly didn't do any better than um, what market participants did. And, um, and, you know, again, in my paper, I list all sorts of examples of where, you know, things have gone horribly wrong with U.S. industrial policy, including, uh, quite ironically, in some of the sectors that we're now, again, obsessed with, for example, like semiconductors. Um, so that's the first thing that I think it's important that we, we should have some skepticism here that, that regardless of the crises, um, that industrial policy is the answer. Um, but the second issue is that, um, especially with China, uh, there are reasons to at least hit the brakes a little bit um, because the mere existence of Chinese subsidies does not mean that those subsidies have been effective. Um, also, uh, you mentioned you know, China's growth, but China's growth trajectory is, I think, um, a, a lot more, uh, a lot less scary than than its past catch up growth, and you know China has pretty significant issues in terms of demographics and aging population. Uh, productivity growth is in the toilet. Um, that a lot of the subsidy programs, again looking at semiconductors, have actually been pretty giant failures with you know a lot of bankruptcies and uh, a semiconductor industry that's still a decade behind uh, companies like Intel and TSMC. Um, that, you know, even in, in sectors where the Chinese government has supposedly done well, like electric vehicles, there's just tons of waste and graft. Um, and so the, the, these, the, the threat 
of China, the economic threat, I think it requires a bit more uh, nuance. And that, look, you know, it doesn't say that China is not a problem, whether due to geopolitical reasons or or other things, but it's not this uh, unstoppable economic juggernaut that requires abandoning uh, decades and decades of of U.S. policy um, that is uh, more market oriented, more market friendly, and quite frankly, has has produced a lot of great great results. Um, and then the last point I think that's again critical is to note that look, there are things that the United States government can do to improve the competitiveness of um, of the U.S. economy, to improve the outlook for uh, core industries. Um, you know, I list some of these in my paper, you know, some of them are, are pretty nerdy, you know, you could talk about full expensing, for example, for in tax policy. Um, but there's also, you know, the, the glaring one, I think, is in immigration, that um, we should be expanding, rapidly expanding high skill immigration, um, that there is a strong connection between innovation, multinational investment, and uh, levels of high skill immigration. Um, and it, particularly, you know, in the university, in our research universities and the rest. Not only that, however, um, there's a lot of evidence that U.S. restrictions on high-skill immigration end up actually benefiting other countries like Canada or, oh, by the way, China. Um, you know, some of the big impediments that China's economy has is in terms of access to human capital. And, uh, you know, if the United States is, acts as a magnet for the smartest people in the world, well, they're not going to be in China, for example. Um, and, and there's a lot of other policies that we could be implementing that I think would boost U.S. industry in a lot of very good ways. Now, the problem, as you note, is that none of that is sexy. It doesn't sound like, aha, we're going to fund AI or we're going to boost the industries of the future. And, and you know, politicians love ribbon cutting, cutting ceremonies and they love to be uh, responsible for, for economic greatness. Uh, but again, I think there are some significant uh, reasons for us to be skeptical that those things work very well. Um, and then the last thing I'd note is that in the climate space, look again, the market isn't a way that isn't that also isn't that sort of if you believe that generally everything you say is right, you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna fund these sort of public goods and we're gonna let the market we're gonna let the market work, but if there's a problem hurtling at us, we just we just can't we just can't wait. And yeah, there's gonna be a lot of waste and we're gonna probably waste a lot of money, but the problem is so pressing that we need to yeah. act. And let that it's that, that it's wartime. In the wartime, you didn't sort of right. You didn't let you didn't let the market sort of devise new weapons. You're like here's what we need, and we're going to fund it, and let's go. Right. I, I think the danger there is that we end up in a weaker position, not a stronger one. Um, you know, whether it is diverting resources from more productive investments to less productive investments, or whether it is undermining uh, core parts of the manufacturing sector, um, or not to mention, again, kind of the, the waste and fraud uh, and, and the uh, corruption that this instills. Um, you know, I think you risk as much creating a, a U.S. shipbuilding industry, as you do creating some sort of um, you know uh, glorious uh, bleeding edge uh, research and and uh, you know research intensive industry, um, and so that again, I mean, and look, you know, we have evidence of this in the last decade. Um, 
that efforts to boost certain industries end up harming other industries. You know, if you look at Trump's steel tariffs, for example, implemented on express national security grounds, fact is that that ended up hurting a lot of other industries. There's also the risk of just simply discouraging uh, investment um, if you if you inject uncertainty into the markets. And so, yeah, you know, I, I, it's not that 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 you. You, you have to do nothing, but we should recognize the downsides of, of action, that, that just doing something does not actually necessarily mean you're going to be in a stronger position than if you had uh, a little more faith in markets and did some very kind of uh, what we'd call horizontal policies. So in other words, uh, improving tax environment, improving immigration, uh, improving you know basic research that kind of stuff, um, instead of uh, cherry picking specific industries because of these perceived threats. The U.S. is a big, technologically advanced economy with lots of capital to fund private research. So is there really a huge downside to spending a few hundred billion dollars on applied research or fund some regional tech clusters, you know, just in case? I know I don't want to wake up in 10 years and have all the leading chip makers be located in China. Right. Yeah. And and so I think two things. First is we need to have a pretty sober assessment of where the United States really is um, with respect to semiconductor manufacturing, with respect to um, a lot of other areas, uh, pharmaceuticals. Or, you know, AI is, it, you know, you say we can't pick technologies, but is it really is it really hard to say, wow, AI, AI is probably going to be pretty important. We should spend a lot more on AI. I think that's the argument the pro-industrial policy people would make is that it really isn't that hard to figure out we're going to need better batteries. AI seems to be advancing. Yeah. Um, there seems to be a huge advance in genetic editing. Is it really that hard to pick these? Well, I think it's- I'm asking you like three questions at once, so I apologize. No, it's okay. Um, so so again, first thing we need to do is have a sober, sober assessment of, of where we really are. And I think that that will show, for example, that there's not nearly the the urgent need for government support that that I think a lot of people uh, uh, say there is. Whether it's in AI, whether it's in advanced manufacturing, um, there's still a lot of very good stuff that's going on in the United States. Um, So I think that's the first point, that that we are not starting from zero and we're not uh, uh, in a very weak position in terms of, again, things like semiconductors, for example. Um, we still produce a lot of them. Um, we still have a national champion in Intel that has had some setbacks, but it's still uh, a pretty pretty darn good. And, ha- and of course, a wash in capital um, and spending it um, on R&D and, and, and CapEx and the rest. Um, but the other, I think, real concern is that the process of trying to pick these winners will actually uh, crowd out uh, the necessary uh, capital, uh, kind of that necessary process of funding and finding the best and most productive things. Um, and, And not just, and that can be even within the same industry. So let's take pharmaceuticals, for example, right? So, you know, the the Trump administration um, spent, or they were going to spend about $800 million in uh, taxpayer loan money to fund uh, Kodak, to get Kodak back uh, to making, uh, not back to making, to turn Kodak into a pharmaceuticals company, right? So uh, because of that implicit government backstop, Kodak's shares 
uh, went through the roof. So a bunch of investors in the, in the market said, aha, this government wants Kodak to be a, a drug company. So we're going to all invest in, in Kodak. And so that capital went towards Kodak. Um, meanwhile, there were all sorts of other companies in the United States that actually make uh, these drug ingredients, what we call API, that weren't getting access to that money. That money was all being tied up in, in Kodak. And at the same time, um, there are plenty of other very, very successful uh, uh, drug companies out there in the United States. Um, you know, we could talk about Pfizer, but look, there's Fujifilm down here in North Carolina that's uh, doing some pretty awesome things with um, biologics. Um, but the point being that that the when the government gets involved, it can distort investment decisions and actually end up inhibiting uh, the best and brightest, the investment in the best and brightest, right? And I think we, again, we need to be really concerned that when you step out of kind of the basic research space and you start funding specific industries and specific technologies, specific companies, you could actually end up retarding advancements in that industry. Um, and, you know, look, I think batteries is another pretty good example of, of what I'm talking about in the sense that private capital, it does a pretty good job of, of finding the next big thing. Um, and, you know, we tried a decade ago to create a, a battery industry and that failed pretty miserably, we being the, the Obama administration. Um, today, however, there is tons of private capital going into the domestic production of batteries, advanced batteries and battery materials, because there is now a, a, a clearer and brighter future for that. Um, and so, again, you know, do we really need uh, the government kind of directing that um, uh, that capital, um, directing that process um, when we, again, we see that that it can have a lot of downsides um, and that the process is still working pretty well. Are, the, are, are, the, are those downsides, or at least the risk of them, acceptable, do you think, if it, if it means keeping, keeping supply chains out of China, making <laughs> sure they have little to no role in anything that we can be viewed, that can be viewed as strategic or essential for national security. Yeah. Whatever those downsides you just mentioned, and there's going to be distortions in the system and maybe some of the best ideas, money gets diverted to other, other ideas. Yeah. That, that it, it was one thing when it looked like China, you know, was a, you know, not nearly as, a, as technolo technologically advanced as it is right. today, when it looked like it might be slowly going in the right direction, but that's not the situation today. And is it worth considering having government more involved so, so China is less involved in our economy in important ways. Yeah, I, so I would be very skeptical. Um, I, I think, let me, how, how can I put it? I certainly think there's a role for U.S. export controls um, to the extent that the United States um, finds the need to uh, deny certain technologies to the, the Chinese government, um, that that is there's there's a role for that. There there are, however, some pretty significant uh, problems. 
First is, in a lot of these areas, the United States is not the only supplier of those technologies. And so at the end of the day, uh, these, these types of export controls just end up harming American companies and not actually um, deterring China in any way. Uh, the second problem is that once you decide that you're going to provide subsidies or other government support or protection to industries deemed, quote, essential to national security. Well, what happens? All of a sudden, every industry in the United States, well, not everyone, but a lot of them, uh, suddenly say that they are essential to national security. And we actually, again, have seen this in the COVID space. <laughs> the textile industry popped up um, as they sometimes do, saying, aha, uh, PPE is essential to national security, so we need all these new um, Buy American rules and new protection and new supply chain mandates and the rest um, to, to get things, uh, to get these essential goods out of China. Um, and finally, there is the risk that it moves from not simply a non-China supply chain mandate to an American-only supply chain mandate. And that comes, of course, from just the usual political incentives um, and, and, again, from, from domestic lobbying to do that. And so I think that to the extent uh, U.S. policy can encourage diversity of supply through things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, for example, to the extent that we can build alliances through um, the National Technology and Industrial Base, which is this uh, kind of defense department program to have a bunch of allies collaborate with uh, certain critical technologies, to the extent that you can, you can expand that sphere, that's totally fine. Um, once you start, however, going down the road of uh, really trying to kind of force these supply chains to reorient, um, and when you involve, again, subsidies and protectionism, I think things get, get pretty dicey pretty quick. I don't want to overlearn the lessons of the past. I think, A, the Soviet Union's failures, and B, Japan's slide into stagnation are two powerful lessons about the failure of government. So persuade me that I haven't overlearned those lessons and that we haven't gotten smart enough since the 1980s to justify putting more money toward AI or regional tech clusters. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think that history should foreclose um, the considering different policies. Um, like you know, there is a you know there's a, a categorical difference between uh, Japan and China in terms of the nature of the government, sheer size. Um, and thus kind of economic influence. But my, my view is that those lessons do or they should uh, give us a lot of skepticism about uh, the, the new industrial policy fad. Um, and that's even leaving aside that the language and arguments being used today are hilariously similar. And I say hilariously because I'm reading right now a book uh, called Losing Time, the Industrial Policy Debate by Otis Graham. It's this pro-industrial policy book from the late 80s. And I kid you not, the language is, you could, you, could, you could take the language in this book and apply it you know, on the pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post, some of these op-eds you read um, from pro-industrial policy folks. It is, it is uh, startlingly similar. But leaving that aside, um, Again, I think that history does and should give us some skepticism about what, what can and can't be achieved 
a government policy and about the threats we face. Um, and so, you know, let's go back to semiconductors. Well, we tried in the 80s and 90s to bolster the semiconductor industry through a combination of subsidies and protectionism. Um, that the, the, the protectionism was um, an absolute failure. Um, not only did we pick the wrong types of chips, but we actually encouraged the offshoring of our domestic computer industry because they couldn't get a hold of certain semiconductors. Um, and it, so it, it was a, a massive net negative. Um, however, even on the subsidy side, the creation of this consortium, Sematech, um, was by all accounts uh, pretty uh, pretty much ineffective at best and was only made effective after it opened itself up to um, foreign uh, competitors. So it was a, this very nationalistic kind of classic um, industrial policy entity. Cimatech, it didn't produce much of anything, not much value beyond what could have been done in the private market, um, but then became a bit better um, after, again, opening itself up to, to uh, all sorts of foreign, you know, Japanese, South Korean, and the rest uh, participation. Um, and so that should, I think, give us some pause about how these, how we're going to to treat semiconductors today, for example, are we really going to have uh, the the a a wise a wiser government in picking in picking the the right uh, products or the right industries, you know that type type of thing, um, and and so that then we need to then apply that skepticism to today. And again, when you when you start digging into this, you know there there may be a narrow and targeted approach for U.S. policy to resolve real market failures and to achieve or to, uh, to um, counter real threats by uh, the Chinese government and Chinese industry. But when you start digging into these things, um, you find a whole lot of uh, misdirection and misinformation um, and a lot less reality when it comes to, um, you know, the need for government intervention. And that's, again, where, uh, you know, going, you look at the semiconductor industry, you see an industry that actually is doing pretty darn well, that even though um, there is certainly a lot of uh, production offshore these days that the U.S. chip industry is still growing. Um, and you see some perils of trying to renationalize chip production um, because, for example, when, when we had the major ice storm in Texas, well, that actually knocked out a bunch of semiconductor companies in Texas and actually exacerbated the global chip shortage that, that like U.S. automakers are now facing. So we need to kind of think about um, the the threats we really face and the the effect the effectiveness of these policies that are being proposed and actually you know achieving market beating outcomes. Uh, last question: uh, You've been talking about let's pump the brakes, let's pause, let's think. To me, it doesn't seem like we're going to pause. Yeah, and there'll be much uh, uh, brake pumping. Uh, where do you? How far down this road and what direction exactly you think is the United States going to go toward having? Uh, a lot more government intervention in what people in Washington think are key key sectors and technologies. 
No, I think that that the train is the train has left the station and is barreling ahead. Um, it, the the goal I think for for those on my side is going to be really to try to narrow the the scope of these measures to to really try to get them to at at the very least target legitimate issues. Um, you know, for example. Um, maybe we shouldn't just be giving billions of dollars of subsidies to any company that wants to build some sort of semiconductor manufacturing facility, regardless of whether that's actually a bleeding edge technology, you know, in the five or three nanometer space. So the really, really advanced stuff, or whether it has some nexus to, to actual national defense. Uh, for example, the new fab, the new facility that's being built in upstate New York for that purpose. Um, so, you know, to the extent that we can, we can work to, at the very least, tailor these industrial policies to actual uh, needs, instead of just making them a giant grab bag for anybody who registers uh, as a lobbyist, um, that, that's, I think, going to be the, the victories we, we see these days. But at the same time, it still remains critically important to raise the very real questions that that industrial policy raises about the ability of policymakers to figure out what the next best thing is um, and all sorts of uh, potential distortions that these interventions can can create, um, whether it is you know really high costs or crowding out uh, private investment in in more productive endeavors, you name it, um, and and that I think will remain valuable even if we we're on the losing side. My guest today has been Scott Lindsay Scott, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 